0: Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and I want to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ LOUIEXIV on Twitter and Instagram. Shop our merch, our iconic niche legend dad hat, and our mere superstar tea at poppantheonpod.com in our merch store. And sign up up for our patreon for bonus content discord access and so much more at patreon.com slash pop pantheon finally on the housekeeping tip Gorgeous, Gorgeous, My Queer Pop Party in LA is having its latest installment this Saturday, March 25th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. If you are a Patreon subscriber at the icon tier, you have access to the guest list. So DM us on Patreon and you can get yourself in plus one on our guest list. If you're not, the link to buy tickets is in the show notes of this episode. And I'd love to see some of you guys at Gorgeous, Gorgeous on Saturday night. I'm so Excited. Okay, let's get into this week's episode, which is an oft-requested one on one of the most enigmatic and fascinating pop figures of the 21st century, Lana Del Rey, who has had a massive effect on the aesthetics and look of pop stardom over the last, let's say, 10, 12 years, and whose ninth studio album, Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard, drops literally tonight at midnight. And just as a quick heads up, next week's episode will be a review of, did you know that there's a tunnel under Ocean Boulevard? So get excited. It's a lot of doubleheader, baby. All right. So there's so much to get into here, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time bumbling up top. Here it is, Pop Pantheon, Lana Del Rey. I want to say something up top here that may sound hyperbolic, but just roll with me for a second. You could frame the entirety of 21st century pop stardom into two main epics, pre-Lana Del Rey and post-Lana Del Rey. Now, I know this may sound crazy because this is a woman who, over her decade-plus career, has had exactly zero top 10 singles, save for one errant, not-at-all-representative EDM remix of her early song, Summertime Sadness. Moreover, Lana's a pop star who engages very little with the trappings of pop stardom more broadly. Sometimes I wonder if calling her a pop star is even an inaccurate moniker and yet Lana del rey has completely altered both the aesthetics of pop music and the nature of a pop career her singular narcoticized torch songs and sad girl persona which felt completely out of step with the glitzy dance pop which defined the early 2010s when she emerged has slowly become the lingua franca of pop a clear and present aesthetic guise and touchstone for everyone from Lord to Taylor to Selena Halsey Billy and Olivia in a more macro sense too her fierce pursuit of her own muse and commitment to world building without chasing trends or traditional hits has proven the savvy and prescient commercial instinct employed these days by a panoply of post-Lana social media era artists, creating a world of pop stars who trade on a cult of personality rather than making concessions to traditional pop markers like radio play or hit singles. The most fascinating part of all of it is that Lana seems to have just stumbled into this, to her massive and enduring impact on the pop space, without seeming to care about her massive impact on the pop space at all. And by simply and fiercely and kind of bravely just doing her own weird thing.
1: Use your last breath.
0: Lana Del Rey was born Elizabeth Grant in Manhattan in June 1985 and grew up couched by the Adirondack Mountains in Lake Placid, New York. In her early teen years, Lana struggled with alcoholism, was sent to a boarding school in Kent, Connecticut to get sober, and eventually moved to Long Island, where she worked as a waitress and learned to play guitar from her uncle. After moving back to New York City at 18, she began performing in bars in Brooklyn using stage names like The Rich Horse, Sparkle Jump Rope Queen, and Lizzie Grant and The Phenomena. She went through a series of false starts in the late aughts before meeting an a representative named Van Wilson at a songwriting competition in 2007 and signing to Five Point Records. She used the advance from the label to move to a trailer park in New Jersey, where she recorded a three-song EP Kill Kill under the name Lizzie Grant. Then, in 2010, she released a self-titled album Lana Del Rey, produced by David Kahn, known for his work with rock acts like Paul McCartney and The Strokes, only to withdraw it two months later, signing to a pair of managers, Ben Mawson and Ed Millette, who helped her get out of her record contract and make a fresh start. Rebranded as the quote gangster Nancy Sinatra, Lana released the self-made clip for her single Video Games in May 2011, a delicate gossamer torch song of emotional disconnection that felt somehow both of a bygone time and starkly of the internet era. Three months later, the video, a collage which presented her as a retro siren with beehive hair, crooning in between grainy vintage clips of couples riding motorcycles, palm trees, and fluttering American flags, went viral, racking up 13 million views, thanks in part to Pitchfork selecting it as best new music, and making Lana the next big thing for pop fans and critics alike.
1: It's better than I ever even you. they say that the world was built for two,
0: The success of video games led Lana to a record deal with Interscope Polydor and eventually the release of her breakthrough second album, Born to Die, in early 2012. Born to Die is a tale of two wildly different receptions. While video games had garnered Lana praise from the music intelligentsia, many critics saw the songs on Born to Die, largely torch ballads which incorporated elements of post Kid Cudi alternative hip-hop and sung with dead-eyed affect as limp at best and craven materialistic and anti-feminist at worst. A much-derided performance on SNL just two weeks after the album's release didn't help a massive backlash that was fomenting. It very much seemed like Lana Del Rey might be over before things had really even gotten started. However, Born to Die eventually found an audience of young fans looking for counter-programming to the relentless shimmer of Katy Perry and Calvin Harris, and it became the second album ever by a woman to spend more than 400 weeks on the Billboard 200, eventually going three times platinum in the United States. Even weirder, while the album's original songs never cracked the top 90 on the hot 100, a dance remix of fifth single Summertime Sadness peaked at number six. Born to Die made Lana a very unlikely and somewhat unclassifiable new pop sensation, seemingly equally beloved by her devotees as she was an object of suspicion by her critics. While many pop stars may have used this roundabout success to pivot towards the center, Lana's next move was in the opposite direction, sending her on a run of projects that only delved further into her strange idiosyncratic aesthetic world, but somehow to an ever-building cult fan base. This began with 2012's Paradise EP, but when into full bloom on her 2014 psychedelic rock homage, Ultraviolence, a highly controversial and disturbing record that chronicled an abusive relationship and was recorded largely with analog instrumentation courtesy of The Black Keys' Dan Auerbach, making absolutely no concessions to mainstream pop. Despite having no traditional hit singles, Ultraviolence debuted at number one and went platinum, proving her unique commercial prowess and laying the groundwork for a series of projects through the 2010s that deepened her songwriting and swirling panoply of references, known sometimes as Lana-isms, to imagery and sounds of Americana and American music history. There was the Baroque orchestral lushness of 2015's Honeymoon and 2017's American songbook spanning Lust for Life, both of which stretched the limits of the Lana Del Rey thing in fascinating, weird, sometimes unexpected directions without ever losing their essential Lana-ness. These records also garnered increasing critical embrace, with many who had derided Born to Die coming to see Lana as the voice of a generation who could collapse time in her music, using allusions to the past and the creation of her sad girl persona to tell a biting story about the present day. Other pop stars, too, clearly began to nod at her sound, as pop music in the mid-2010s seemed to shape itself to what had once seemed like the musings of a true pop outcast. All of this climaxed with 2019's Norman Fucking Rockwell, her sprawling magnum opus, which traded largely in Laurel Canyon folk aesthetics courtesy of producer Jack Antonoff, and featured her sharpest, most incisive songwriting to date, touching on everything from imbalanced gender dynamics in a patriarchal society, to the death of the American dream, to suicide, internet era isolation, and climate change. Norman Fucking Rockwell became one of the most critically acclaimed pop albums of the 2010s and landed Lana an Album of the Year nomination at the Grammys.
1: Don't ask if I'm happy. You know that I'm not, but at best I can say I'm not sad Cause hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have
0: Since Norman fucking Rockwell, Lana has released a spoken word album, Violet Bent Backwards Over the Grass, and two more studio albums, 2021's Chemtrails Over the Country Club and Blue Bannisters. Her ninth album, Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard, will be released tomorrow at midnight. Lana Del Rey is seen as one of the most influential artists of her time, and also a continuing lightning rod of controversy for some of her cultural borrowing and comments made related to race, gender, and feminism. The Washington Post has listed Lana Del Rey as the only musician on their Decade of Influence list. Pitchfork named her as one of the greatest living songwriters in the US and Rolling Stone placed her at number 175 on its 2023 list of the 200 greatest singers of all time. Her videos have racked up over 400 million views on YouTube. She has sold 32 million singles and 15 million albums in the United States. She has two platinum records and 15 platinum singles, and she's received a Golden Globe Award, two Brit Awards, two MTV Europe Music Awards, two Billboard Women in Music Awards, and six Grammy nominations. Here with me to discuss the work of the enigmatic Lana Del Rey is author, journalist, and teacher of the class Topics in Recorded Music, Lana Del Rey, at the Clive Davis Institute at NYU, Kathy Uh Yandoli. I am here with music journalist and author and professor of the Lana Del Rey course at NYU. It's Kathy Yandali. Kathy, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I got to ask you first off the bat, what made you want to teach a class on Lana? What made you interested in her? What made you feel like she was someone that was worthy of discourse that would rise to the level of an NYU course in your mind? Well,
2: I think that when you talk about artists, to influence an entire generation. Talking about the level of inspiration that becomes the catalyst for the generations to follow. Lana Del Rey is that artist for this new generation. Mm-hmm. She's crossed well over the 10-year mark at this point mm-hmm. of being an active artist. So often we have this problem with acknowledging artists of the early aughts and even moving into now the 2020s, of their ability to be kind of like this archetypal figure in especially pop music. Mm. We'll be so quick to talk about the artists of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yes, and they're all very important. But when it comes to the inspiration for the artists today, you have people like Billie Eilish who have outwardly said Lana Del Rey made us. There's also just this mystique around Lana, Mm. while also something that's very grounded and obvious and tangible if you break apart her music. So she was just an incredible case study.
0: To me, it's almost self-evident because as you were sort of mentioning, she's fascinating, I think, in her work. And I can't wait to dive into all of those elements with you. So filled with contradictions. This listen through, the thing that I kept thinking of was the sort of use of cliche and Americana to collapse time. So in some of her most effective works, I was thinking about the ways that she sort of draws on so many different elements of past art and past culture to sort of paint a picture of modernity in a really interesting way. Way. And I love the way that she has honed her craft in doing so. And I can't wait to trace that with you. One of the things that I'm most fascinated about as someone who sort of macro looks at pop stardom is the way that I feel that she's completely reinvented the way that pop stardom functions. I mean, this is an artist that has never really kowtowed to the pressures and demands of mainstream pop stardom. She's never really made concessions to traditional hit making, to a lot of the ideas that we think or de rigueur for a mainstream pop star, and yet due to the way that she was able to cultivate her fan base on the internet and do this world-building exercise, this giant cult phenomenon world-building exercise of pop stardom, she's been able to operate as, you know, top-tier arena touring pop star without having to necessarily do any of the classic pop star moves. And I think When she first emerged, it seemed a little bit hard to situate her in the context of the other pop stars of that moment because she was huge and culty and she was avant-garde and mainstream. She had like a lot of things going on at once. And yet now I feel like almost... Every pop star, you mentioned Billie Eilish, I think is another obvious and great example of this, operates in this way. Pop stardom is less and less about Max Martin hit singles, although Lana did work with Max Martin at a certain point, but kind of like (laughs) as a lark, and way more about this idea of idiosyncratic world building and playing to your large cult fan base. And you don't necessarily have to make concessions towards Mm -hmm. the mainstream in the way they used to. And to me, when I think about patient zero for that concept, I think about as someone that really was the person that both affected the aesthetics of pop music, but also the way that pop stars operate now.
2: Yeah, and I think it's just accidental women's empowerment. Yeah. Because what she was representing is the ability to cherry-pick your vulnerability while respecting your own privacy, which is something that women in music in particular over the last several decades never had that ability to do. And her fighting for that in her own way lends itself to be able to be this intersection of macro meets micro. And I think that's the thing that's her superpower. Mm. She exists in that world where you can be divulging nothing at the same time. And and she likes it that way. (laughs) Oh
0: my God, it's so fascinating. It's so true. The whole time I was listening to her records back this time, I'm like what is the character what is realness what is diaristic what isn't and how do we even parse that apart in her music where does the character of Lana Del Rey begin and where does the confessional singer songwriter that we see what is all the differences and I think she's done such a fascinating job throughout her discography of never letting us answer those questions in a really clear way Mm -hmm. her music thrives in contradiction absolutely it's fascinating to me the way that she plays a character often that feels counter to the sort of bold-faced women's empowerment pop stardom that a lot of pop stars of her generation are so clearly trading in, whether it's Beyonce or Katy Perry or whoever else, she kind of acts antithetical to this by inhabiting this sad girl character that she sort of made for herself. And yet at the same time, as you mentioned, her career bears out this, as you said, feminist, self-contained ideology of I do what I want. I make the music that I want to do. I don't present myself in the ways that other pop stars do. I mean, even when I think about her sort of even clothing aesthetic, as it's evolved over time to kind of sure. be like she proudly shops at TJ Maxx or whatever the hell it is, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean?
3: Like <laughs> right, right. there's
0: something so badass and really actually punk about that in a way that even the pop stars that are out there toting more broad-based traditional ideas of feminism and self-empowerment, she inhabits it in her own very idiosyncratic and complex way that makes her completely fascinating as an artist to me. Yeah, she's
2: the anti-pop star, pop star, anti-feminist, feminist. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. That's, really what she is. Yeah, it's so interesting. So I'm so excited to pick this apart. The other thing that I'll just say before we get into the details is this is also an artist that I feel like we've really watched blossom into something way more complex and yes. fascinating throughout her discography. Like someone that I don't think I totally wrapped my head around what she was doing exactly right at the beginning. And mm-hmm. to listen to the evolution through these records was very rewarding. She's become a real storyteller of our generation and somebody that can really drop bars, honestly. There was, there was a couple of lyrics on Norman Fucking Rockwell, I was like, Jesus Christ! She just wrapped up an entire concept about modernity or global warming, or <laughs> gender dynamics or whatever in like one cliche-ridden bar. I don't know how she exactly does that, but she's really developed quite a bit as an artist over time. So I'm excited to go through that all with you. So I guess maybe a good place for us to start is just with some light background. I mean, you just taught a course on the woman, so I'm assuming you're pretty steeped in Lana Del Reyisms. How does she kind of find her way into becoming a musician, and what's her background exactly? Yes.
2: So from Lake Placid, New York, she is the product of two parents who both worked at marketing company Gray. I mean, I knew it as Gray Advertising. I think it's like the Gray Media Group or something now. Gray Group. It's a huge company at this point, but that's where her parents met. It's funny because there's always like this controversy over what her childhood was actually like. Right. Some say she had an incredibly privileged childhood. She would argue against that regardless in college, she was a philosophy major with at uh, Fordham with a focus in metaphysics. And Lana wants to be this musician. She wants to be her own version of a rock star. Mm-hmm. Moves into a trailer park in Northburg in New Jersey, which is actually literally like I could drive there right now. Wow. To gain this inspiration, she went through a number of different names and personalities. I yeah. mean like May Jailer, <laughs> Sparkler Jump Rope Queen by her actual <laughs> government name, Lizzie Grant. Yeah. That's who we first meet. Right. Is Lizzie Grant. By the time she got to her Lana Del Rey project, this was an artist who had already created the persona and the vision right. that she was going to deliver what would ultimately be her record label at Interscope. right? But yeah, you have an artist, went to Phenomenal School. She went to the Kent School. Mm -hmm. She has this stellar education, which has actually allowed for her to take a deeper look at her music. And when we search for Easter eggs in Lana Del Rey's music, it's because of just how well-read she is. Clearly. But the journey to Lizzie Grant, the artist came from, I think, her collecting experiences. You know, she did deal with addiction. She had this journey. You're talking about an artist who two of her faves were Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse, right? So she has created this world within a world before we even get to understand that she can sing.
0: It's really fascinating thinking about this world within a world idea because I almost think of her as a American mythmaker. Like I think a lot about right. her music has to do with utilizing the cliches of the American dream to sort of build out this underbelly of that and also celebration of that in this weird way. And there's almost this fascinating concept I'm thinking about as you're talking about her circling around who she wanted to be and forming this fully realized aesthetic world before anybody even knew who she was. That feels very American to me, like this idea of kind of making yourself, of making yourself into the person that you want to be, the freedom to just sort of create your own vision or your own story or to start over or to constantly start over just feels like an incredibly American idea that I feel like she embodies through this idea of bouncing around to different identities and the ways that she's trying to find herself. I'm curious, you mentioned Kurt Cobain, you mentioned Amy Winehouse. Who do you think are some of, either from what you know, or if you've had to pontificate here, who do you think are kind of the influences on her musically or even just pop culturally in this early phase that are helping her build out this identity that she lands on?
2: Well, I certainly think that those two are very important in the sense of Amy Winehouse was an artist who at the time was bringing the call back to a bygone era right. in her aesthetic and even the music that she was making. Because if you think about the late 80s, early 90s, you have the Riot Grrrl movement yeah. that leads into the 90s, which became kind of the origins of the sad girl, but a different kind of a sad girl. Right. Like, let's say, Dolly Parton's Jolene, right? Right, yeah. Your
3: smile is like a breath of spring. Your voice is soft like summer rain. And I cannot compete with you, Jolene.
2: Amy brought it back around yeah. and brought it back to the pining in a sense.
0: Yes, right. The
2: self-loathing, the depression. You go back to her, and I go back but then you have someone like a Kurt Cobain, where his entire career he orchestrated himself. Had the paintbrush where I think Amy was going into a different direction because she was operating off pushback yeah. and responses from the media and things like that. So when it came to Lana, those were the two biggest influences. But I don't think it's really been mentioned, but I can see a little Dolly Parton in there too, Definitely. at least during the early time period for Dolly's career, especially. Mm-hmm. There's also this bygone rock star. Janis Joplin type of figure, where it's kind of self-destructive, but also a little badass.
0: Yeah, for sure. And Amy is a fascinating almost counter to her because they do share a lot of that kind of destructive self interrogative, almost self-flagellating vibe to them. But Amy is always very brassy and sort of in charge through all of that. Whereas Lana is more willing on record to come across as like you could blow her over kind of, you never really felt like you could blow Amy over in a sense. And I think that that's an interesting contrast, but I agree. Amy definitely feels like an important groundwork. You know, when I was listening back to some of Lizzie or Lana's early work, especially that song, Kill Kill, sounds very much indebted to Amy's sound. You know, and the other things that I was going to sort of stick pins in are some of these torch singers, somebody that I really thought about a lot listening to. This was Julie London, for instance, these singers that utilize the microphone to create a lot of intimacy.
3: Come on and cry me a river, cry. Me a river I cried a river over you
0: We just even did an episode on Frank Sinatra and that reminded me in many ways of Lana being an inheritor to that crooning style. Like, Uh, it's interesting to think about the idea of the way that she utilizes the microphone is something that I was very, very cued in on listening to her music this time. I mean, so much about listening to Lana's music is listening to the way that she's able to speak really quietly or coo really quietly in your ear. She's not a bombastic vocalist. And that's another thing that I think is an interesting contrast with Amy. And then the other thing that feels really important, especially as we're sort of getting into the Born to Die thing, is the hip-hop influence. I mean, there's obviously a part of her that grew up on hip I mean, she once framed herself or was framed as the gangster Nancy Sinatra. Yeah. <laughs> so she is a product of the hip-hop generation too. And I think you see that in ways explicit and implicit in a lot of her music. She's around my age. I grew up in the New York area. I'm assuming that she was listening to Biggie and Jay-Z and Nas and Wu-Tang Clan and everything else that we were all growing up on at that time. But That feels like also an important element to her artistry as she's developing this idea of herself.
2: Well, I think before he dragged her, she would cite Eminem as a huge influence. Mm,
0: Another highly controversial artist. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So how does she sort of move through the music industry? She's sort of cycling through a lot of these personas and then she ends up releasing her self-titled album, Lana Del Rey. How do we get to that point?
2: Yeah, what you're meeting now is an artist who's just getting to know herself and what she's choosing to abandon from her Lizzie Grant era. And you're watching actually the genesis of who became Lana Del Rey. So you're seeing kind of like fragments of this artist from the Kill Kill EP. You're seeing seeing pieces of this person, but those projects leading up to that self-titled were rough in the sense that you can tell she was kind of throwing some shit against the wall and seeing what stuck. Not even for her audience, but for her. Yeah, right. Do I want to be the pop star? Do I want to be mysterious? Do I want to be self-loathing? Do I want to be self-loving? She was still kind of tinkering with who was this persona that she was going to package and deliver up the world. You're talking about a child from two marketing executives. Right.
0: Okay, (laughs) This feels very important, actually. Right.
2: This is in her blood and figuring out how am I going to market my vision? Mm. It's a very authentic vision.
0: Absolutely. I
2: think that what a lot of people... Mistake Lana for as an industry plant, which she was not. Right, she's an artist who, very much like every other part of her life, she curated this identity. Mm-hmm. She is her own Pinterest board, yes, 100%. And
0: it's such a good way of putting it
2: with that Lana Del Rey project. What we're witnessing is her coming into her own with the Lana Del Rey identity, right?
0: what do we understand about who Lizzie Grant is before Lana Del Rey comes into being? And then my next question is, who is the Lana Del Rey character as we come to meet her in these early stages? How would you describe that character?
2: Hmm, That's a good question. Lizzie Grant reminds me of that misunderstood protagonist in like an 80s movie, right? The one who has the heart of gold, but she's abusive to herself and men. And then, When you go into her inching into the Lana Del Rey character, she becomes kind of this polished woman who cries herself to sleep, yet somehow doesn't smear her mascara, right? (laughs) And when you look back, it's like incredible because I think that she presents herself as the most well-composed mess at
0: that point. Interesting. Like
2: the woman who is dying inside but still makes sure dinner's on the table.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm always so interested in what caused her to be so drawn to that particular sort of idea of mid-century American womanhood that she seems really fascinated by, especially on this early project. I think that is really accurate. And I don't think she necessarily bore this out as the project developed over time. She became much more willing to be messy, mess.
2: Yeah, visibly messy. Yeah,
0: visibly messy. But it's so interesting because I feel like a lot of what she gestures towards in the early Lana character are these ideas of these Hollywood starlets or these almost great Gatsby-esque women who were kind of heartbroken and broken down by the patriarchy in a lot of ways, but also presented this sort of pristine vision of herself. That is the initial sort of version of the Lana character that I guess we come to meet early on here.
2: Maybe she was drawn to that character because her mother was so empowered, so she never saw a housewife. So maybe it was like a matter of creating this fantasy of what a housewife looks like, because maybe she never actually lived with one. Maybe if her mother never had a job, she would have been the antithesis to that. The one thing that I would say about this, project, the Lana Del Rey project, this was heavily influenced by her trip to Miami. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is where the problematic parts begin, Mm. because I think what happens is she goes to Miami and she has these Cuban friends. She starts to learn a little Spanish. Mm -hmm. It's like she goes from the trailer park to Miami and that alone can create some sort of raising of the eyebrows Mm -hmm. in the way of the communities that she feels connected to. The same thing happened when she got to Los Angeles. So this only magnified what later became people's opinions of Lana being drawn to conditions that she never experienced. Mm. And this is where the trope that she was... More privileged than she claims really happens because it seems like she became a socioeconomic voyeur. Like now I'm going to inhabit communities I've never been and I'm I'm going to create this voyeuristic and it's like almost fetishizing these communities. Whereas her counter argument is I felt a kinship to them. Mm-hmm. So again we don't know what that means. Right. That album is pretty damn good. It's still a hodgepodge of her trying to figure out who she is.
3: Yeah. Right. But
2: we are seeing these fragments of, like I said, the girl in the 80s movie who might ride a motorcycle or might fall in love, might not. right? Because you're seeing this person who is simultaneously attracted to the man on Wall Street and the biker
0: guy. Right. That I pulled out from the critic Megan Garvey, who I think is just really sharp on this. Oh, yeah. She was kind of comparing Lana's character to the paintings of Edward Hopper, who was like an iconic American painter of American landscape. Her quote is Hopper painted isolated voyeuristic scenes of the anxiety and ennui of an increasingly urbanized nation set against the totems of Americana, like diners and motels and highway gas stations. All items of fascination in Lana Del Rey's music. And she said his work buzzed with the tension between tradition and progress, the cold power of the new against the sublimity of the natural world. Like Hopper, Del Rey's realism functions doubly as impressionism, a literal representation as a means to capture the feeling of life in America. And I think that that's so aptly captures the character that she inhabits. She's almost playing with these Americana tropes as a means of reflecting a feeling about the way that America still is. And when I talk about the collapsing of time that I find in her music, this is one of the things that I mean here is that she's very often gesturing at these past ideas, the Mm -hmm. 20s or the 30s or the 40s or the 50s or 60s, 70s, whatever. She's got these very distinct references she makes in those ways. But I think, and especially as her music develops, it's less about her making pastiche of those eras and more a statement on, hey, we're not so different from the sort of tensions and patriarchal ideas that defined those specific eras. Now, than we were in those eras and that's what she utilizes the sort of cliches or the characters that she creates from these different eras to throw in our faces and that's kind of where the artistic tension of her music lies.
2: You're right. And I, I think the thing is everything leading up to Born to Die, she's a composite of all these things. I don't think she travels in any one direction mm. at this point still. Yeah. And I think what happens is, especially when critics look at her early work, they kind of hone in on the part that becomes the most apparent. But when you really dissect it all, there were fragments of all of this beforehand. I think it also has to do with what is considered Americana. This dials back to the pushback. It's what's your definition of America prior to kind of her political renaissance that she had years later. Yeah. When you say I just want to go back, it later reeked of Make America Great Again. Did she say that? No, but that's what it reeks of when you say I'm calling back to an era of that purity. And that became, I mean, that is ultimately the conservative battle cry of recent years. A hundred
0: percent, yeah. So
2: what she might have been really emphasizing is minimalism and, and this simplistic viewpoint of the world and understanding that maybe if we don't put so much emphasis on gender roles we may have better interpersonal connections in our marriages or relationships based upon watching this evolution, if I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I think that she was referencing that feeling of riding on your bicycle in the summer while the fireworks from 4th of July are over your head. And all you want to do is like (laughs) eat a hamburger and some lemonade with your family. But then someone may turn around and say, you're celebrating the independence of a country that has never made me feel independent. And that's where the conflict is. The idea of celebrating this nostalgia and that feeling that you get When you hear certain songs or certain memories come to mind, but for some people, there's more pain than pleasure in those. Mm -hmm. And I think that she forgot that in the early days.
0: I wonder if it's that she forgot it or that she just wasn't as adept of an artist yet to really give you the reality of what she was trying to get at, which to my mind is that the music is both glamorizing those ideas, but Uh also presenting the character as a pretty broken, sad person. So it's not like the character of Lana Del Rey, even as we meet her in this early work, is presented to us as some sort of fulfilled, happy, perfect Jackie Kennedy character. The character seems to me to be much more someone that is yes, living under all of these kind of cliche Americana, white Americana, we should say, like ideas. Yes. But at the same time, I think the real artistic tension that sort of defines a lot of her work is that the characters that live in those worlds that she builds are usually like kind of broken down, sad, unfulfilled, having to make a lot of compromises, being abused, being abused by men that are addicted right. to drugs. <laughs>
1: A drugie like I
0: So I think she got better at painting that contrast in her later music. So I totally agree with you. I can see how the early work sort of feels more like it's a hearkening back or celebration of those things without necessarily asking the questions that needed to be asked. But I do think that at its core, and perhaps what her intention is, is to provide that contrast and say, Americans always lived under this contrast. Everything that we think of as sort of like these happy, cliche American ideals that we look back on were never just that. They were always inhabited by people that were really broken and struggling underneath it all. Right. But also that we still live in that world. And I think that that's what her later music and her refined songcraft has really honed in on is that drawing the connections between these cliche broad ideas we have of past American eras and sort of saying, but that's still what's happening now. Like I'm going to sing a Laurel Canyon folk song and I'm going to allude to iPads and all of these things to help draw the connections between the cliches that my work trades on of the past and what is going on here in the future and the sort of suffering That kind of exists beneath the cliches. And I think that that's always been perhaps the thesis of the Lana Del Rey idea, although perhaps not so effectively rendered as it became later on this early work, maybe. So she has this first record, the self-titled album. It doesn't really go anywhere as far as I could understand in terms of how it was received commercially. Then she kind of like floats in 2011, mm-hmm. this song Video Games that changes her career. Can you talk to me a little bit about video games and what's happening there and why that song and the video, I think we should say simultaneously, are kind of yes. the thing that really crystallizes the Lana Del Rey project for the first time and becomes the thing that sort of sticks and starts her career as we know it today.
2: I refer to this as the start of her sepia tone success. Yeah. <laughs> because Lana's entering into her Tumblr aesthetic era right? You're talking about a person who very much wanted her sound and her images to be mirrored. Yeah. If I looked at Tumblr images or moving images of Lana Del Rey, I heard video games. Mm. And if I heard video games and I was synesthetic and I'm closing my eyes, the color schemes I would look at would be those that I would see in the Tumblr aesthetic. Yeah. They became mirror images of one another. Mm-hmm. And I think because it was so cohesive in that moment. And obviously, we send a nod to the fact that she self-shot that video for video games. We started to see very early on someone who was putting all of her artistic eggs into this basket mm. of what became who we knew as Lana Del Rey.
3: Yeah.
1: It's you, it's you, it's all for you. Everything I do, I tell you all the time. Heaven is a place on earth where you tell me all the things you want to do. I heard that you like.
2: This became very alluring to the music industry before the rest followed mm. because she's sounding old timey right she's yeah. got that old hollywood voice right but she's talking about video games and she's painting this picture of this woman who you know if you listen now she sounds kind of pathetic right mm-hmm. she sounds like every girl who watches her boyfriend play video games and she's just begging for his attention yeah. right <laughs> i'm in your favorite sundress and he's like could you move over i'm trying yeah. to play call of duty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Open up a beer, and you say, Get over here and play a video game. I'm in his favorite sundress, watching me get undressed, take a body downtown. I say, You're the best, just leaning for a big kiss, put his favorite perfume on.
2: Play a video game. So it's so funny because that set off what's kind of that archetypal sad girl right now of mm-hmm. the girl who there's so much swimming in her head, but she's placed in, and to quote Erica Badu, analog girl in a digital world. And I think that's where she was at at that point, and it drew people in.
0: Yeah. What I love listening back to this is so many basic ideas of the character arise here. I heard that you like the bad girls. Honey, is that true? Is what Alana-ism to get right there on the first song. And then the spareness of the production, that sort of just harp and restraint that the production shows is something that I feel like she builds on so effectively in later work, but that a lot of Born to Die's tracks don't do as well. But there's something so beautiful about listening to her quiet voice against that harp sound that I think is such an alluring aspect of this song. But then you also get, as you were saying, kind of exactly what I was trying to gesture at earlier, which is sort of the time collapse, right? This song sounds like it was plucked out of another time period, but at the same time, you're dealing with someone who's talking about her boyfriend playing video games. It's this connection between the past and the present that I think is so interesting and so Lana, 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 right? And then, as you mentioned, the sort of lack of fulfillment, the idea of women and like what they sort of deal with in relationship to men is another thing that Lana obviously returns to so much in her work. Heaven is a place on earth where you tell me all the things you want to do. I, yeah. eat. like, wouldn't it be great if we could talk
2: <laughs> or something like that? Right, right. It's so crazy. Yeah. But the other part is this feeds into the Tumblr aesthetic because you have people sharing old timey images right. on the internet. You're talking about how you miss the crackles of vinyl while you listen on your iPhone. Yes, exactly. This is the meeting place <laughs> of all of that, of like, if this isn't the houseware section of Urban Outfitters. I don't know
0: what is. She is the musical manifestation of that nostalgia kick in so many ways. Okay, so video games, can you describe the reaction to it, the way that it was received and sort of the expectations it set up around her as a new figure in pop at this specific moment?
3: Yeah,
2: video games encapsulated the fantasy perception of Lana Del Rey. Mm. And it would later be abandoned when the album released only to be picked back up during Norman fucking Rockwell. Right. Which I think was interesting. Mm -hmm. The ability to be so cinematic in her work and create a picture that literally and figuratively said a thousand words Mm. to have these kinds of full-bodied flawless vocals that became kind of like this sonic ASMR or Mm -hmm. musical ASMR, (laughs) I should say, (laughs) where you're being kind of wooed into submission. Hypnotic almost. Hypnotic, yeah. Yearning for this utopia that she's building Mm. that again, people... Found disgusting by the time we got to ultra violence. But in that moment, People weren't listening to that. They were hugging the nostalgia. They were on the bicycle with the 4th of July fireworks overhead, deciding if they want to eat the hamburger or hot dog at the family barbecue in the summer. Mm. That's what that song gave you. Mm. And it wasn't until the other songs followed yeah. and that you then started to dissect the words. Yeah. I don't really even think anyone dissected video games right. until they heard the other songs.
0: Meaning that it was just kind of received as a vibe more so than taken seriously as something that was meant to be dug into lyrically, essentially.
2: A hundred percent, because I think we were all collectively existing in this Tumblr aesthetic too, Mm -hmm. especially since Tumblr and Instagram arrived in tandem and there was nothing we loved more than a filter. Yeah. Lana became the music for the filters. It wasn't until people snapped out of that that they were like, okay, now let's figure out why this is a problem. But it also was because... Lana arrived at a time where women in pop music were being forced into the mantra of fight like a girl. Right. And I think there was a population of girls who felt bad being told to fight like a girl. Maybe they felt internally weak. So much of the music is like, I'm lighting my boyfriend's car on fire. And some of these girls are like, well, I'm stuck in this relationship out of my own will, but I'm voluntarily, I'm living in this misery. I don't want to keep talking about music where... I then feel bad about myself if I'm choosing to stay. The fork in the road happened at this as we go deeper into
0: Born to Die. It's so fascinating. To, I think you're getting at a really important thing we should put a pin in here in this early song, which is that that is a recurring theme of Lana Del Rey's music is staying with men that we view as less than perfect or they don't treat women particularly well is something that she constantly is unpacking in her music all the time. I mean, I think about Jim on Ultraviolence, who's clearly a drug addict and a cult leader that she's obsessed with, or, you know, the way that she says, as in Norman fucking Rockwell and that first track why wait for the best when I could have you like one of her greatest lyrics ever yeah so it's right here in video games in this opening salvo is this idea of her as this person that in a stickier way than the broad based EDM pop anthems of this moment is allowing for some sort of human nuance in the sense of yeah well a lot of times we do stay in situations that are less than ideal or that have a lot of less than shiny aspects to them and she presents that character here so clearly in this song and then let's talk about the rest of this record because I think the one thing that I would just want to say about video games and what I remember from the time period is that it was largely well received I remember feeling like people were really drawn to it as counter-programming to a lot of these other pop movements that were happening at the time it was something that was very much texturally different than what we were getting from a lot of these other female pop stars of the moment and then I felt like there was sort of a collective disappointment at the record that followed can we talk about what is happening on the rest of Born to Die that either delivers or doesn't on the promise of video games?
2: Well, I remember during the whole Born to Die era, this was... My entry point to Lana, and I had a review. I think one of her first shows in New York City for the Village Voice at the time, and I remember she was on stage and she had like I think it was like a Diet Coke and a glass bottle with the red and white striped <laughs> straw, <laughs> yeah. and everything was very Betty Boopish gesturing.
0: And she was very manicured, as we were saying. Very. It's not like the Lana we know today. She had a very different image at this point.
2: Yeah, it was like the Priscilla Presley wedding hair and yes, right, mixed with the Amy Winehouse cat eye and very popped but I think also the resistance that came in the middle of this album promo was that people started to feel as though it was an industry construct. Mm-hmm. And at that point, suddenly, all of the words that she had been saying from Jump became so abrasive. Mm. And I think it's because You had people kind of collectively siding with her to start in being like, she's saying all the words we've never said. And then it turns around and be like, I believed in you. And it's like, well... Is it because you think that like the music industry, the marketing departments put together a vision board and created this person? Because it's actually not true.
0: I think that part of the problem is reflecting on this record, which I remember liking at the time, but I like a lot less now is unlike video games, which has a very delicate touch with its production and all these things, there is this feeling I really felt it listening back to a lot of songs do this. Born to Die does this. Off to the Races does this. Die in Mountain Dew does this. There's this Very overt sort of top line mashup idea of torch singing and then post Kid Cudi, Kanye West, 808s and heartbreaks, mm-hmm. trip hop production elements. Mm-hmm. It hasn't aged particularly well. I was thinking about a song like Diet Mountain Dew, I think is a really good example of this, where you've got hip hop production aesthetics and her doing her sort of torch song vocals and then also sort of employing cliche in this way that she hadn't yet found a way to, I feel like, weaponize that fully effectively. And I think that that's where some mm-hmm. of the misunderstandings came in about who she was as an artist.
1: Let's take t-
0: As you said, I think a lot of people were taking this at face value, but it's like, you've got this woman up here talking about, my old man, give me the gold coins. My old
1: man is a bad man, but I can't deny the way he holds my hand and he grabs me, he has me by my heart. He doesn't mind to have a Las Vegas past. He doesn't mind to have a L.A. crass way about me. He loves me with every beat of his cocaine heart.
0: Blue jeans and a white shirt.
1: Blue jeans, white shirt. Walked into the room, you know you made my eyes burn. It was like James Dean, for sure. You're so fresh to death and sick as cancer
0: all of these Americana cliches being thrust at you in the context of this kind of overthought aesthetic mashup of musical ideas that I do think has not aged particularly well. And I personally don't feel, and I don't know how you feel about it, that most songs on this record hold a candle to video games in terms of being great representations of the Lana Project. I mean, are there songs on here that you feel like are worth drawing out either because you like or dislike them or they illustrate things that I'm saying or things counter to what I'm saying here?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Off to the Races is actually my favorite song on the album and, yeah, one
0: of my top five Lana Del Rey songs. What do you like about Off To The Races? Why does that one stand out for you?
2: We're introduced to the Lolita character through Off To The Races. Yeah, right. The first line of Light of My Life, Fire In My Loins is the opening line to Lolita. Yeah, right. She's talking about this idea of making you feel like you're at the Kentucky Derby and then you're in Cipriani's basement. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's so tongue-in-cheek and it's funny to me because At this point in time, I think what they were hoping to do, and and for a while they committed to this, where Lana was supposed to be kind of like the female weekend. Right. And I also tend to love the weekend when he's at his most toxic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still one of my favorite weekend songs is high for this. Mm -hmm. And he's basically talking about how he and his lover needs to both be basically catatonic to have successful sex. Right. right? (laughs)
0: When I'm fucked up, that's the real me, he famously said.
2: Exactly, and that's the thing. We've allowed The weekend to evolve past that, even though the undertone has always been loveless sex. Mm. But we didn't show that grace to Lana.
0: Right, interesting. And
2: we didn't give her that time. And I think the other really interesting part is we're talking in the 2012 era of hip-hop. We're now three years into the Drake Singing About Our Feelings era. Yeah, right. Kanye West won the battle against 50 Cent in the album war, which then lent itself to this ability to have emotions in music. Yeah. So you started to see hip hop gravitate towards Lana Del Rey. Totally. Because rappers were talking about emotions in song, and who better to kind of be the muse... And vice versa. Yeah. I mean, ASAP Rocky and her video. There's a, There was a lot of overlap. I personally can listen to this album over and over again, but I think it also has to do with understanding now the concept of nihilism right. that she was placing into the project and understanding that all of this was more of her own visual case study that she was setting to music.
3: Mm.
2: There was this meme, Born to Die was Schopenhauer, and I think Lust for Life was Nietzsche. <laughs> Even though there was Nietzschean undertones in Born to die, obviously, but that's nihilism at its finest. You started to see her grim reality, grim acceptance. I was drugged up through it all. It was fun to listen to. I mean, I'm also just not the type of person who assumes that when someone listens to a Lana Del Rey record, they're going to go out and do X, Y, Z. No,
0: no, 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 not at all. I think to me, I see this as the work of an artist who at once has a fully fleshed out sonic and aesthetic identity and at the same time is still trying to hone her voice in that way. And there's a bombast to these productions that I feel like she dispenses with very quickly moving on to Ultra violence and even when she returns to trap illusions on future records they don't sound as bombastic and in your face as some of the ways that a song like born to die being a great example of this like merging of hip-hop and then sort of this film noir aesthetic mm-hmm. together with each other it's interesting to me also that it's hard to characterize i think sometimes the reception of the record i think because it was at once extremely commercially successful and at the same time catalyzed a giant backlash against her and when I was thinking back on that I was like how do we sort of think about this because in some ways I felt like she had to spend a lot of time digging herself out of a hole of the way that people perceived this record as you said she was seen as an industry plant we should touch on the fact that there was this SNL performance that was highly derided and I highly recommend people go back and look at it because it's not nearly what we necessarily even remember about it it's
3: you it's you it's
1: all for you everyone tell you all the time
0: but there was this sense that this was all kind of put on and not real and she wasn't really an artist was the vibe that I remember being the narrative around a lot of this music. Then on the flip side of it, which you know is so much of the dynamism of the birth of Lana Del Rey in this moment, is that this record is so hugely influential on the sound of pop moving forward and yet yes. it doesn't have traditional hit singles on it and the one song that becomes the hit is an EDM remix of... <laughs> Of one of oh, these yeah. Torch songs. So this album has a lot of interesting super narrative structure around it. I think people still to this day, even Lana fans, have a really divisive opinion of whether they like or dislike this record.
2: Yeah, I think that they tend to cherry pick the songs that they like. And I think once it was reloaded with the Paradise EP attached to it, I think there was another different dimension that was provided. It was almost as if when Kanye West releases an album and he's still updating it on title the day that it's out. Yeah. Because I think she might have gone back herself and just recognized that there's certain tweaks that she wanted to make. Yeah. I often wonder if our older catalog, how she feels about it
0: herself. Yeah, I wonder how she feels about this record too. Because I think because of what she made on her second album, I have a feeling that she She herself struggles with some of this music because ultraviolence is so different sounding to me and feels almost like a reintroduction to the whole idea of her, including in her image. And we'll talk about that in a second. I did kind of feel like when I watched the SNL performance and I see her in the gown and all this stuff, that didn't feel totally comfortable to her in a way that I feel like now she has this giant fuck you attitude about the way that she looks and presents herself and the clothes that she wears, obviously about her music as well, that I feel like there was a sense when I watched her in that SNL performance. Not that it's such a disaster that everybody thought it was, but there is this feeling of, yes, in so many ways, the Lana Del Rey thing is here right at the beginning. That's so exciting to say, but in other ways, it feels like she is being attempted to sort of be pushed into boxes that don't necessarily allow the nuances and depth of her work to fully shine. I guess that's the way that I sort of interact with some of the songs on this record.
2: Yeah, and I think at times we don't always draw the line that connects an American movie classic with an indie film. Right. Those things are very similar in their own ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where Lana was, where there's something very low budget to all of it,
0: in a good way. Yeah, the video games video is like that.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it still became kind of like her battle cry as she's evolved as an artist too, but I also would say That she is someone who very much understanding that she's now one all the people over that she wanted to win over. Yeah. Of course, she's going to show
0: up to TJ Maxx now. Like, who gives a fuck? She's
2: already cemented her place in pop music.
0: Yeah. And she cements it as an iconoclast who doesn't play by the rules, which is why I think there's some dissonance in the presentation of this record, which is that because she was a new artist and because this was her breakthrough album, there did feel like there was an exertion of control over at least some of the images and stuff like that that she really quickly bucks. That just makes me wonder if she presented the idea of the Lana Del Rey character to the record label, and then they sort of overlaid that with their ideas of how to market and sell that. That's sometimes how I feel like this record comes across to me. But I do love, and I don't think we should just leave this without nailing down, you were just mentioning, there's obviously the idea of Lana-isms, these themes that she returns to all the time. You mentioned Lolita, and there's various ideas and characters and cliches that she returns to again and again. Is there any others on Born to Die that sort of strike you as things that we should just talk about here because they just manifest over and over again, like these Lana-isms? One that comes to my mind is the idea of the crazy woman. She often talks about, I feel crazy, I'm crazy, you're crazy. I wonder if there's any other ones here that sort of jump out to you as classic Lanaisms that surface for the first time here. I return
2: back to nihilism. I yeah. think that first and foremost is the big undercurrent through her entire catalog. Yeah. This idea that God and the world, nothing is real, life yeah. and death are not real, you might as well live by your own terms and what makes sense for you in, in a senseless world. I think that idea, even just the title of Born to Die,
3: absolutely that
2: in and of itself encapsulates that because I think when you go ahead and you operate from that standpoint, mm-hmm. you're ultimately saying that you're not really worried about morality or self-esteem or even god at that point it's every person for themselves at that point nihilism is probably the biggest lanaism that i would think about mm. everything else is an extension of that the crazy woman is acting crazy because she's actually just nihilistic
0: right that's so true Yeah. You know? Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, you might need to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access. If you join for just five bucks a month at the Icon Tier, you'll get access to all of our bonus content. This includes deep dives into classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope with Rich Deswiak, Taylor Swift's Reputation with Britney Spanos, and Britney's Blackout with Troy McKitty, as well as reviews of new records like Scissor's SOS with Owen Myers and Miley's Endless Summer Vacation with Shad D'Souza. With new episodes being published all the time, we also touch on all your favorite new songs, fluctuating pop star Pantheon, positions, and so much more. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel, the guest list at my party gorgeous gorgeous, and a ton of other great perks. So sign up today at patreon.com slash pantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. So as you were saying, this album gets released. There's a lot of critical backlash to it and a lot of discussions about, is she an industry plant? What value does this music have? Of course, there's a lot of accusations that she's anti-feminist by the way that she's presenting the sad girl persona that we were sort of laying out earlier. And as I mentioned, none of the actual songs are smash hit records in any sort of meaningful way, except for this remix of Summertime Sadness. Yes. And yet the album is massively successful. It sells millions and millions of records. Clearly there's a huge amount of people that are gravitating towards us as you mentioned it's re-released soon after with a series of new songs on the paradise edition which includes one of my early favorite lana songs which is ride produced by rick rubin what i love about this record and when i think sort of gestures towards the lana of the future is it dispenses with the hip-hop flourishes and goes straight for something more kind of rock indebted that i feel like is what ultraviolence is gonna do again here Mm -hmm. i'm tired of feeling like i'm fucking crazy
2: Lana-isms California as the backdrop. That's a massive part of it, too. And I think the cover to Paradise presents a more Los Angeles Lana on the cover. If you look at it, she's like kind of sun-kissed and
0: she's not so buttoned up like she is on the cover of Born to Die. Mm -hmm. There's some great Lana-isms, too, like on Body Electric. She says, Elvis is my daddy. Marilyn's my mother. Jesus is my bestest friend. Elvis is my daddy.
1: is my bestest friend
0: It's all so funny. It is funny. It is funny. It took me so long to realize that she was in on the joke. Yes, exactly. I think that's what people didn't get. This is such an important part. I think people were kind of unclear. Is this a dumb girl character or is this girl dumb? There's like an element of that that's hard to parse out maybe here for people at this moment.
2: Right. She is aware of the LOLs of her audacity.
0: Right. At least in music and video. It's also commentary. I mean, I think that that's the really important idea here. She's embodying some of these characters and tropes as a way of making us look at ourselves as a culture and look at these tropes. Mm -hmm. It's self-reflexive in that way. And I don't know, maybe people just didn't get it yet with her, or she wasn't as great at deploying them as she became later. That's my personal theory. So as we said, this record is characterized by both its commercial success and also the fact that she kind of is left having to dig herself out of a Backlash when it comes to her next record. She even says at some point that she doesn't want to release music anymore after this. Mm -hmm. I remember her gesturing at that. She has a bit of a hit with the song Young and Beautiful off of The Great Gatsby. I think that's one of her highest charting songs. And then she comes back in 2014 with the record Ultraviolence, which is a huge sonic pivot, or as huge of a sonic pivot as you get in Lana World, I guess. She's kind of ditched the hip-hop, trip-hop aesthetics, and the whole record is kind of gesturing at 60s and 70s psychedelic rock. How would you describe this record, and how does this record sort of redefine or start to rebuild Lana as an artist of heft and seriousness, or that critics begin to take seriously? Like, what happens here? What changes here?
3: Well,
2: she entered this project, I would argue, from like a position of, animosity. Regardless of what people thought of her, she held her art very close to her. And to have people pick apart that art, and now she's tasked with making more of it, she's going to come in hot. And I think that's what happened here. I, in many ways, believe that Trip Hop is a very distant cousin to psychedelic. Definitely. So I would still say there was the threat of continuity even though... That's a good point. She kind of ditched the heavy baseline aspect of where she was going in Born to Die. Right. But with ultraviolence, you're starting to see what became the R.I.P. T-shirt rock Lana, an indie rock Lana, almost like a more polished version of the Lana Del Rey album.
0: Right. You can see it on the album cover. All of a sudden she ditches the whole glamour post thing and she's literally in a white T-shirt.
2: Yeah. And now she's just like, I'm going into my rock star era. But the music sonically reflects it, but the lyrics don't. Mm -mm. But in a way, they do. Let's focus in on the track that had everyone horrified at this point, the title track. Yes, right. Right. He hit me and it felt like a kiss, a nod to the Crystal song. Yep. Co-written by Carole King, who is considered to be kind of feminist songwriter icon and still composed that line.
3: And when...
2: I struggle with this project because I feel like what Lana was saying is even badasses get cheated on.
0: Abused even.
2: Yeah, and end up in abusive relationships. And in cults, perhaps. (laughs) Being swayed into directions that seem to be the antithesis of who they are. Mm. And this project, for many of the artists who... Cite Lana as their inspiration, this is the project that they need. Check.
0: Yeah, I love this one. Maybe my second fave.
2: This is the project where I started to feel fucked up about liking Lana. Yeah,
0: I, know. I understand that. Yeah, this album's fucked up. There's no question about it.
2: Yeah, I think about the song Sad Girl a lot.
3: Yeah.
2: became the framework of the sad girl for years to come. But yeah, this is where... I felt like I was doing something wrong when I was listening
0: to it. I think that's what I like about it. First of all, I love the sonic texture of this record. I love the live instrumentation of it. Dan Auerbach, right? Oh my God. The song Cruel World is a masterpiece. This opening song is just absolutely transportative. I am absolutely taken to exactly where she wants me to be with that big, billowing guitar and those vocals those choral vocals just buried in reverb and this sort of abandon with which she approaches the lyrical content of that song it's just absolutely the most transcendent and unencumbered thing she had done to that point The evolution of her songcraft, the ability of her to transport you to a place and to draw you into sticky, complicated emotions of feeling free and in a cult and all of these things at the same time is just so much more complex and interesting here than it ever was on her earlier projects. But I agree with you. I think what I like about this is she digs even further into sort of the contradictory nature of the character and whether she's celebrating or commentating on this character of this woman that's in an abusive relationship or whatever it is, this American woman living through the freedom times of the 70s, as she talks about in Brooklyn Baby, right? That's what this record is gesturing at that era, this yeah. idea of counterculture. They say I'm
1: too young to love you. I don't know what I need. They think I don't understand the freedom land of the 70s.
0: But this record is almost like the Manson family of albums, breaking down the idealism or the perfect images that we have of counterculture and hippie culture. I mean, when she talks about Uncruel World, again, she returns to this crazy idea. You're young, you're wild, you're free, you're dancing circles around me, you're fucking crazy. And yet she's sort of framing that in the way that she's enamored by this guy. You love your women, you love your heroine, she says. She talks about... I'm your jazz singer, you're my cult leader. I mean, it really almost is the allure of the toxicity that happens in hetero relationships in the specific way that she's painting out here. I just think these songs are so fascinating and so visceral. You are swept into a world here on this record Mm -hmm. that, yes, I agree with you, is incredibly toxic and creepy and weird. I mean, think about that opening guitar lick on Shades of Cool. That is a very menacing, scary, Psychedelic. A lot of these songs remind me of like an acid trip can be at moments euphoric and then at moments terrifying and scary. Right. That's what this music really reminds me of. My
1: baby lives in shades of blue Blue eyes and jazz and attitude He lives So
0: on the one hand, you've got this dense and really layered record that is both celebrating and exploring the images of 60s and 70s hippies culture, the ideas of freedom, the ideas of sort of Escaping from norms, escaping from tradition, and finding homes in non conventional places. In this case, with this cult leader, Jim, and this cult that she seems to be joining. So, this character is like experiencing, this woman is experiencing both the freedom of the 60s and 70s, but is still hindered and stuck in the abuse of gender dynamics and patriarchy that have defined every generation of Americans, I guess, up to that point as well. So, you've got this really amazing storyteller that's developing in Lana on this particular. Record record and then you've also got kind of the continuation of a lot of the themes maybe presented in different eras or different lights that we did see on Born to Die you mentioned the obsession with California and the backdrop of California which is such a major part Mm -hmm. of Lana's music obviously I think about the lead single West Coast which is incredible for so many reasons but here she's not just using that as set dressing she's like taking the idea of California and of Manifest Destiny and what moving west has meant to Americans and both wrapping herself in those illusions and sort of cozying up to those while also kind of commentating on the hallowness of it or of the self-centeredness of the american dream she says down on the west coast i've got this feeling like it all could happen that's why i'm leaving you for the moment what an interesting lyric down on the west coast i
1: get this feeling like it all could happen
3: that's why
0: Her ability to unfurl story and to kind of render this complex character that I think she was beginning to get at on the first record just feels like it blossoms into something way more dynamic on this record for me. I love the complexity and the friction of this character on this record, but I get what you're saying. It is icky. You're kind of like, oh my God, this is challenging to listen to this character that she's presenting here, but she does it in a way that's incredibly alluring and incredibly visceral to experience. That's my feeling on it anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely produces this internal conflict, but it's like one of those ones where it's an internal conflict that most people have.
0: Yes, exactly. And you were talking about that earlier.
2: Yeah, it's toxic, but it's alluring. Right out the gate, she just opens up this world that you know is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> but you're still kind of like, you've got one foot in
0: and one foot out. Yeah, but that's so real. She's mm-hmm. so real for that. I love this record because I think it's a big fuck you to everybody that was criticizing her before. It's like, instead of kowtowing to what people were sort of criticizing about her on the first record, she went even further into her idiosyncratic artistic guys here. I mean, this record is even more challenging than Born to Die is to mainstream pop aesthetics of this moment. I mean, that's what I love about the chorus of West Coast. Here we have all this EDM music being the centerpiece of pop and she's making her chorus literally at halftime you know that in itself feels like a fuck you
2: this entire project is her response to the critics and i think that even calling it ultra violence i think is her big fuck you and the way that she expresses that is by being even worse, which at the core (laughs) really does reflect her fascination with Eminem because when Eminem was taken to task Uh, for his controversies, he kind of leaned further into them and made it almost a spectacle.
0: Yeah, exactly what is rendered in what we're talking about this attitude is the song Fucked My Way Up to the Top, one of her most brilliant middle fingers ever because that's literally her response to people saying that she's a plant or whatever. She sings from the perspective of someone that did do that. That's how lana addresses that but she's sort of at the same time that represents an ironic sort of middle finger at people that say that she's manufactured or whatever in terms of how this record repositions lana in the musical landscape what do you think she comes out of this record i don't think it's as big of a hit as born to die is, but how does this record leave lana in the broader context of pop how does this set her up
2: I think this album was the gateway drug to the future projects, really. And I think that seems to be what this exists as in the world. What we got from ultraviolence was almost like Madonna's erotica project. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes love that comparison.
2: It's almost like that scene from Back to the Future that your kids are going to love it. It becomes that moment where it's like, are you going to keep crucifying me for being audacious or are you going to call me a genius
0: like you would if I were a man? I love this idea because I think this is the moment where she was like, I don't give a fuck what you think about me and I'm going to keep doing my thing. I think that's what I get from this. And then the irony is that she continued to be so successful while doing that. And that loops back to something I was saying at the beginning of the conversation and how she's remolded pop stardom in her image, Mm -hmm. which Is that she has been able to give that middle finger? And in Madonna's era, and when Erotica came out, that meant commercial decline because she couldn't have the hit songs. And there was a very specific way Mm -hmm. that pop started churned in that period in the '80s and '90s and 2000s. You had to have a hit parade. You had to count out. You had to have the song for the radio. You had to have this slew of easily accessible hits that you could play at a bar mitzvah, right? Mm -hmm. But Lana has proven that as she drives. Further into her idiosyncrasies, she continues to operate as this massive pop star. And this is the moment where I think she proves that to herself and she rewrites the rules of pop stardom forever. Right. I think in this particular moment in a broader sense. So let's talk about the next couple of records together: Honeymoon, Lust for Life. How do you feel about these two records? We can touch on each of them briefly. Honeymoon comes out in 2015, Lust for Life comes out in 2017. Let me start with Honeymoon, just very briefly. What is that record to you? What is she doing there? What is the aesthetics there? How does the character come? to life on that record.
3: Well,
2: we're still getting these fragments. There's, like, the self-loathing. Yes. There's still that happening. And I think about the title track where she opens, like, we both know it's not fashionable to love me.
1: We both know That it's not fashionable to love me But you don't go because truly, there's
2: nobody for you but me. She kind of returns to this self deprecation mm-hmm. that I don't want to say we were hoping that she
0: ditched with ultra violence. <laughs> you were hoping it had reached its apex and she had moved on. Yeah.
2: Like I was like, I thought we got past this. There's the hip hop percussions that yes. kind of come back.
0: Like on Tie by the Beach, most notably. You get those big trap drums.
2: Yeah. And I love that song.
0: Me too. It's one of her best. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> And a great video where she fucking shoots a rocket at a helicopter that's stalking right? her house in Malibu. One of the great Lana videos, in my opinion.
2: Freak, which gives a bit of weekend vibes, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Super narcoticized. You can feel like whatever those benzos like dripping off of that song. okay This continuing theme of sort of the revelation of the underbelly of the California dream, right? Come to California, be a freak like Me Too. I mean, it sounds like a total circus sideshow nightmare of a song, and yet she's beckoning you into this hellscape of California or whatever at the same time. It's a really interesting contrast. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, sign me up, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> As someone who recently lived in California for the first time, she does kind of get at something really real about the dissonance between the beauty of the surface, especially about LA in particular, and then the seedy underbelly of the whole experience.
2: There's moments where you want to be like, come on, Lana, you're better than this, in the way that the lyrics of some of it. Yeah. But I think the thing is, you have to have no regard for your life to have no fucks left to give.
0: Yes, 100%. So there
2: has to be an element of her not thinking... She's worth it to a degree to abandon at people's expectations because there's an undercurrent of that no matter who it is. When you've abandoned expectations, it's because you don't think you'll ever meet them. So I think that's where this is at play, where she continues to kind of let us know that if she doesn't have regard for certain expectations that people have of her that she should have of her. And I think it's kind of funny because titling it
0: Honeymoon. (laughs) It's again that contrast of using something that we sort of in cliche think of as this bright, shiny thing, and then using that to sort of create anxiety, tension, depression, violence, everything under the surface of that in the actual music.
2: Well, the use of the word honeymoon is to show a temporary period of happiness. Mm. When you're talking about a relationship where you're still getting to know the representative that you're with that's the honeymoon phase. And the honeymoon before you have to do the real work of marriage. You have the bells and whistles of the wedding. Then there's the honeymoon where you Mm. get to just have your time together in a fantasy setting. And then after that, somebody has to go to work or you both have to go to work and you have to worry about bills and all this other stuff. So I think the title definitely plays into the notion and the vibe of escapism that throughout that whole
0: project too. Yes, right. We talked about in video games, how you have the woman that's waiting for the man to stop playing video games and pay attention to her. Right. I love the line on High By The beach where it's almost like she reverses that role where she's like I don't need your money to get what I want all I want to do is get high by the beach it's almost like the woman occupying the role of the emotionally distant one who's impenetrable I love the way that she flips those things around on that for sure. That's great. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to say just before we get off honeymoon is just like this is orchestral Lana that gestures a lot towards Bernard Herrmann scores and movie scores of the Mm mid-century and something that is the ongoing travesty of life, which is that Lana hasn't done a Bond theme yet. And I've always thought that 24 Hours would have been an amazing Bond theme. Yeah. There's only 12. Parents Loves You also gives me a little bit of Nancy Sinatra, You Only Live Twice.
2: Yes, definitely You Only Live Twice. There's definitely elements of that throughout the project. You-
0: another important influence that we should put a pin in here is nancy Sinatra. generally i mean the song bang bang he shot me down feels like of course ground zero for so much lana stuff 100
1: bang bang that awful sound bang bang my baby shot me
2: down
0: yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so that's Honeymoon. What about Lust for Life? Like, how do you view Lust for Life as a tweak on the Lana formula? Like, what's going on there? Oh,
2: I mean, I feel like this project became producer gumbo. Oh my (laughs) gosh. From Boy Wonder, Metro Boomin, was like (laughs) Benny Blanco, Max Martin. There was just a lot. On this, I like it as someone who has worked in and loves hip hop. The fact that Playboy Cardi's and yeah. ASAP Rocky, obviously, <laughs> yeah. weekend on the title track, right? Yeah. And I do love Sean Lennon in my course, with "Lust for Life." It's a reflection of Nietzsche's amor fati or the love of fate. Mm. Even though the producers were so. Producers in big letters. Yes, right. The music, the lyrics were more grounded than I would argue in previous projects. Right.
0: I mean, she's literally got a big open smile on the cover, which I think says a lot about what the vibe is.
2: She's in front of like an old pickup truck and she's got the flowers in her hair. When I see that cover, I think about in Forrest Gump when Jenny gets inside the car and doesn't come back and you've got Forrest giving her the peace sign. It's like, I can't tell if she's skipping town or if she's posing in front of her man's truck before they head to the farmer's
3: market, right?
2: Yeah, And I can't tell if they work there or they're shopping there. That's so true.
0: It's enigmatic, yeah. Yeah.
2: I really like the song 13 Beaches. She opens out like I don't belong
0: in the world. Yes. And so much lush imagery. Yes, I love how refined of a songwriter she's become. The dripping peaches. I'm camera ready almost all the time, she says. Oh my God, that is such a fucking amazing lyric. If it hurts to love you, but I still love you. It's just the way that I feel. What a Lana thesis. It hurts to love you, but I still love you. It's just the way that I feel. That is everything about Lana. She's into men that sometimes mistreat her, but she just accepts that for what it is. Isn't that how she approaches so many of the themes on her records, I thought?
2: A hundred percent. And I think that this is the project where I understood why three years later she released a poetry book. I understood why that happened. The lyrics of this felt more like poetry. Mm. The other thing is, there's just something to how she put this together. And of course, having these high profile producers like Max Martin, right? Yeah,
0: right. On the title track with The Weeknd.
3: Yeah. And I-
2: There was a period of time where the mark of commercial success came from whether or not you worked with Benny Blanco or Max Martin, right? And I think this was her foray into that territory where we're starting to see Lana becoming comfortable with the sound of a pop star.
0: Right. But I think what's so interesting about it all, though, is they never subsume her. I think all of these producers we talked about, she has very idiosyncratic producer choices on a lot of these projects, whether they're Dan Orbach or they're Rick Knowles on Honeymoon. One of the things that really hit me listening to this record this time is that no matter who's here, whether it's Metro Boomin or Max or Benny, yes, can you hear some of the glossy flourishes they're adding, yes, but these songs are always first and foremost Lana Del Rey songs and they're in her world. They are entering her soundscape and I feel like that is such a testament to her artistic confidence in this time period. You don't listen to this Max Martin song, Lust for Life, and think that it's anything less than a Lana Del Rey song. It still sounds so much like her. I think that that's one of the things that really struck me about this record is this is Lana's version of like a big tent pop album. As we mentioned, it's like you've got all these producers, you've got The Weeknd, you've got Stevie Nicks, you've got Playboy Cardi, you've got Ace <laughs> Rocky, you've got all these people. All of a sudden, pop, up here and yet the force of her artistry the force of her artistic confidence is able to sort of funnel all of that into her world in a way that never feels like she's making concessions to mainstream pop ever.
2: And I mean it shows in the fact that it wasn't a huge commercial success. No. <laughs> So I think pop Lana is not the Lana that the world embraced. And it just shows that maybe the world actually was quite sad.
0: Yes, it certainly was. And she literally posits on one of these songs, which is very prescient of the next record, is it the end of America? Right. Is it the end of
3: America? Is it the end of America?
0: This is the record where I also think she starts to gesture at things larger than the sort of myopic world of the character and the girl that she is. Mm -hmm. Her songwriting starts to be able to encompass larger ideas. There's two things I wanted to point out here. One is, I think the song Love is one of my all-time favorite Lana songs, and I think it's kind of her attempt at an American songbook standard in a sense. Mm -hmm. 50s rock. And I've talked a lot about my obsession with this idea of her collapsing time. I love the lyric, look at you kids with your vintage music coming through satellites while cruising. You're part of the past, but now you're the future. Mm -hmm. I think encapsulates that idea
1: Look you kids with your vintage music Coming through satellites while cruising You're part of the past but now you're the future Signals crossing can get confusing It's enough just to make you feel crazy,
3: crazy, crazy
0: It's enough just to make you feel crazy. There you go, another reference to the idea of being crazy, but that's not what I was gonna say. What I was gonna say is the way that this music feels both so specifically referencing other times and yet feels kind of unmoored from time in the same sweep is so fascinating to me. And then the other thing that I just wanted to pull out here is I think that there's a sense where she begins to kind of wink and nod at the Lana Del Rey thing. This is where she reveals that she is in on the joke. You brought up earlier that she's always been in on the joke, but I think this is a project where she starts to more explicitly paint that out on the song Coachella Woodstock in my mind, which is a hilarious song song. to begin with because she's imagining the way that people at Coachella think they're at Woodstock, but it's not like at all, which is such a brilliant and funny takedown of the karaoke-ness of a lot of our culture these days that gestures at nostalgia but has none of the meaning of what it's gesturing at you know what I mean
1: I was a Coachella leaning on your shoulder watching your husband swing in time I guess I was in it cause baby for a minute
2: it was Woodstock in my mind but it's not without her having to get to a place where she was kicked into reality. Because yeah. we didn't mention the Ride mini film where she's wearing the Native American headdress or right. all of the multiple problems with Tropico sure. from 2012 <laughs> and 2013. And yeah. I think what we're getting by the time we get to Lust for Life, which is four years after that, four or five years later, yeah. is a person who is now like, OK, what am I keeping and what am I abandoning from mm. these past projects or past ideas? Yeah. What what we start to see now is that person who the filmmaker starts to fall in love with even more? Previously, it was working with certain directors to create the visuals for her. This is the time period where she's slowly being regarded as a quote unquote real artist.
0: One hundred percent. The critical embrace is now in full swing.
2: Yeah, and I think it also had to do with. And I wrote a piece about this. It was actually before this project. It was around 2014 when Eminem kind of came for Lana in one of his verses. I
0: punch Lana Del Rey, right? in the face twice like Ray Rice in broad daylight in plain sight of the elevator surveillance till the head is banged on the railing.
2: And so- everybody came to her defense. I remember predicting in my work, this is going to be the turning point where people are going to start applauding her for reasons they don't even know. Yeah. Because everyone loves The Damsel in Distress. And it was the who, me. And as soon as that happened, she was then given carte blanche to do what she wanted artistically.
0: And now you're hearing Lust for
2: Life and they're like, oh, how did you manage to get Max Martin to sound nothing like Max Martin?
0: A hundred percent. And also if we can just pull back the scope a little bit, it's like every major pop star at this point is completely aesthetically influenced by her. And it's so obvious. I mean, you listen to a song like Wildest Dreams from 1989 produced also by Max Martin is so clearly Alana rip. Right. He
1: said, Let's get out of
0: I mean, Taylor's ripped her over and over again, Miss Americana and the Heartbreak Prince. I mean, I could make an entire playlist of artists just doing Lana songs at this point. So her sound at this point, it's so funny because she had so fiercely stuck to this music against prevailing winds in pop music. And at this point, mm-hmm. while you're in 2017, pop music is orbiting around her at this point. Yeah, she's driving the zeitgeist at this point. She's driving the zeitgeist. She has completely reinvented it without doing it in this pretentious way where she's trying to be anything. Not at all. That's why she's so fascinating to me. It almost feels like she's little house in Malibu making her little art projects meanwhile she's completely altering the nature of pop stardom and pop music simultaneously as we know it right it's an incredible image but I do kind of feel like that's what she's done unbeknownst to her right like she's just like I don't know what you guys are talking about I'm just here making my little albums my little problematic (laughs) (laughs) records I'm just here my little problematic album (laughs) all right so The album that I think many view as the artistic apex of her career comes in 2019, and it's called Norman Mm -hmm. fucking Rockwell. It's by far my favorite Lana record. I think it's absolutely majestic, intoxicating, the hypothesis of her songcraft. Mm-hmm. What is it about this record that you think represents the end point of something or the culmination of something she's been working towards to this point? I would argue that
2: she's running out of what was her previous definition of Americana. Mm. I think she finally learned that Trump's America was a problem, <laughs> right? So she's getting a full glass of his shit show by 2018. So that if she's putting together Norman Fuck and Rockwell in 2019, the rose colored lenses have been completely smashed. Right. We start to kind of see on this project the way she talks to men is different too. Because mm-hmm. you're
1: just a man, it's just what you do.
2: Sonically, obviously, it's mainly produced by Jack Antonoff. Yeah. And I do love how she changes up the producer roster almost every album. Mm -hmm. This is the project where we start to see that perhaps Lana wasn't on the joke the whole time. Yeah. Because I think people wrote her off as just completely delusional. And this probably feels like her most lyrically grounded work. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, she knows what she's saying.
0: Yeah, and I think it's her most personally moving work and also her most mm-hmm. incisive cultural commentary on contemporary times. I think this is where she's able to bring forward. Things that she's gestured at a lot very well in the past, but I think this is the best that she ever does it in terms of utilizing the lingua franca of past musical aesthetics and past cultural aesthetics to say something about the death of the American dream, the death of westward expansion, and the realities of the nuances and complexities of troubled people navigating love, which is something that she is often gesturing at in her music, but to me, this is the one where it stops feeling like some sort of broad-based character study and feels really honest. I mean, not that she hasn't felt honest before. I don't want to say that. But as you said, there's a sense of groundedness. You lose your way, just take my hand, she says on Mariner's apartment complex. There's something tender and intimate and small. Yeah. Maybe that's a good word for it. You lose
1: your way, just take my hand. You're lost at sea, then I'll command your boat to me.
3: Don't
0: look too far right where you are, that's where I am. It's kind of smaller sounding in the way that the Laurel Canyon folk aesthetic of the whole record allows for her to sound more human and more of the people in a way that sometimes she sounds like such a grandiose character or something like that.
2: Yeah, I'm I would argue that not it being the death of the American dream, rather the death of her American dream. Mm,
0: Interesting. Because I
2: think for so long, Lana had painted this picture. And I really and truly believe that her watching how America responded to Trump and how Trump responded to the world at large, I think that changed everything for her in the way of how she approached this Americana construct. Yes. There's still some elements of it, which I think to your point could be diminishing the American dream or just understanding that sometimes it could be the American nightmare, right? Yes. And I think
0: there's a lot of that floating around. The lyric on Fuck It, I Love You, where she says, I moved to California, but it's just a state of mind. Turns out everywhere you go, you take yourself. It's not a lie. So I moved
1: to but it's just a state mind.
0: So much of the American dream is based on Westward Expansion. The dream of California, so much of her music is about that. And this sort of realism of that. Like, that's a lyric that I can take to heart and understand in my own life. There's a wall that comes down here on this record that makes me feel like I relate to her in a new way. Not just as some of the loftier ideas she presents, the incisiveness of her songwriting and the specificity of her songwriting is in full bloom here. And then not to mention the incredible musical flourishes like Venice Bitch and that incredible psychedelic California daydream outro that goes on for six minutes. That's as much a part of the song as the lyrics of the song. Right. I mean, that song is so incredible to me. You're in the yard. I light the fire. You write, I tour. We make it work. You're beautiful and I'm insane. Mm-hmm. Were American made, almost like the apex of her ongoing commentary on the American woman, the oppressed American woman, as being viewed as insane and sort of existing to support the dreams of the man that she's with, essentially, the beautiful man, quote unquote. all rendered over this almost like bucolic simple laurel canyon californian folk guitar arrangement that then sort of like explodes into this psychedelic fantasia that also alludes as much to sort of folk music as it does to the west coast tradition of like dr dre's squelching synthesizers i mean just a genius genius song both lyrically and production wise And then you also get the genius of her covering that Sublime song. Right. Which is another song that's such a California staple in so many ways. And like so many other songs in this album, takes sort of the hazy, sunny dream of California that exists on the surface and slyly sort of alludes to the darkness that lays beneath that. I think it's also an interesting moment where she sings from a man's perspective from the first time. She very pointedly does not flip the gender pronouns in that song. Right. She also does that again in a Mariner's Apartment complex where she references the Leonard Cohen song, I'm Your Man, and she says, I'm your, man. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm your
0: Man. It almost feels like at times she's stepping out of the character that she's created of the sort of sad girl that we've learned about over the previous records and sort of viewing that from all of these different angles, which makes this record so dynamic. Right, I agree. I love what you're saying about Trump too, which I feel like is important. She makes protest music not by throwing her fist in the air and going, yeah, I'm protesting, but by like helping you understand what the reality of life feels like in a very dissonant moment in our time. Mm-hmm. And I think that the greatest really gestures towards that, Jen Pelly and Pitchfork described it as a song that sounds like jeweling while you watch the earth burn, right. which I think is such an incredible way to describe it. And the lyric, the culture is lit. And if this is it, I had a ball. <laughs> so right, right. funny and incisive. The
3: culture is lit.
1: Guess I'm
0: signing off after all. The way that it feels to just be living your life out, right, in the context of a burning world, that you're just mm-hmm. using the euphemisms of the way that we speak now, and you're having fun, and at the same time, the world is ending. I love that about it. And then I think the last thing I'll say about this, because I know I'm going off, but I just love this album so much, is the most beautiful song to me is hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have. And I think that's really the moment of this record that I think really speaks to the evolution of the Lana project, which is that we talked about all these characters and these guises she's embodied, the sad girl, the girl that's like engaged with men that treat her badly, the nihilism you talked about. Mm -hmm. And here you have a song that is essentially about how as much as everything she's ever covered in her music and everything about life as she sees it, makes her feel hopeless and even nihilistic as you've pointed out she ends the song with this really tender voice saying hope is a dangerous thing to have but i have it and i think that that in and of itself a cautious optimism yes is a moment of revelation for the character right that is a moment of tender revelation that feels like the culmination of all of her work to that point and is so incredibly moving
3: hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have
0: Here we have the woman who was sort of just dead-eyed and despondent or seen that particular way, that nihilism that you pointed out early on, sort of tenderly admitting that through it all, she still retains that hope. That is one of the most moving moments in Lana's discography to me.
2: It's strong evolution, I think. She's coming into her own in a different way.
0: Yeah, there's nuances here that I don't think were present on the earlier work with the character. And I think this album, I can't say enough, is just a fucking masterpiece. All right, so this album is a critical darling, gets an album of the year nomination, widely seen as kind of the best Lana record, I think. She's released two albums since then. Chemtrails Over the Country Club, which was also produced by Jack Antonoff, and is really her folkiest record yet, I would say. Mm -hmm. And this record, Blue Bannisters. Is there anything you want to say about these records you were saying that you kind of feel like they're not her strongest work, in your opinion?
2: I think what affected the reception was 2020's question for the Culture.
0: You know, this was just an Instagram post. Right. This was something that she posted on Instagram in May 2020, where she essentially was sort of saying that the industry isn't welcoming to her music because she gets criticized for quote-unquote glamorizing abuse or whatever and then she sort of claims that a series of women of color like Beyonce and Camila Cabello and Cardi B and Kehlani and Nicki Minaj have had so many hits with questionable subject matter and that she feels like she's being treated unfairly in the context of these other pop girlies essentially she got to a point where she's like
2: all right now can i go back can right. i do it now right
0: interesting now
2: that i've proven that bubble blah." Block- while well, I understood the sentiment, the way she delivered it, when she put up questions for the culture, listing a strong list of predominantly Black female artists talking about, now that they've done all this, can I go back to expressing my frailty and my this and my that? It was terrible timing. I mean, it was written during quarantine, but also during the midst of America, once again, reevaluating its treatment of Black Americans with mm. George Floyd. And she's now going to sit there and and place these women as examples of toxic aggressiveness. And she's out here asking everyone, can she return to the frailty and highlight the love without this and without that? And then she had to like turn back around and renege on some of the stuff. I got the gist of what she was saying in this question for the culture. She says, now that Doja Cat, Ariana, Camilla, Cardi B, Kelani, and Nicki Minaj and Beyonce have had number ones with songs about being sexy, wearing no clothes, fucking cheating, etc., Can I please go back to singing about being embodied, feeling beautiful, being in love even if the relationship is not perfect or dancing for money or whatever I want without being crucified or mm-hmm. saying I'm glamorizing abuse. Mm-hmm. And she goes on "Sam, fed up with female writers an alt singer saying that I glamorize abuse and
0: oh, I forgot about this
2: it kind of just undid so much of the buildup to this artist. So much so that when we got to Chemtrails Over the Country Club, it seemed as though people focused more on the country club and not the chemtrails. Mm-hmm. Because she was still continuing in that aesthetic. Chemtrails Over the Country Club, basically you're talking about people over there playing golf while they're catching cancer in the air. Right. <laughs> There's yeah. the duality of it, but then people picked apart the cover as her and all her white friends. And also it was heightened because of what was going on in the country
1: in the swimming pool me and my sister just playing it cool under the chemtrails over the country club
2: I think that became a flyover project even though I think it's actually a great project mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but
0: it was like wrong place wrong time
2: yeah like White Dress I think is great I think the title track is great yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and then when we get to Blue Bannisters yeah. you're talking about her now craving the simplicity of a regular life this is where TJ Maxx Lana enters the yeah. chat <laughs> Black <laughs> Baby Suit is one of the ones that I would I love that song. highlight yeah. as one of those songs but I think it's more or less now her when she was really sing the title track, she put up an Instagram post. And I was like, something about like life making you change. She wants to just hang out with her sister
0: yeah. and be like a cool aunt. She says, I just want to be with my boyfriend eating ice cream, right? If this is the end, I want a boyfriend to eat ice cream
1: with. And if this is the end I want a boyfriend Someone to eat ice cream with And watch television
2: Now she's in the era of the superstar in their twilight, even though really we know she's just begun. Mm. But I think what happened with this project is people started to fall back in love with her because everybody loves to watch a woman be humbled. Mm. And I think she voluntarily humbled herself and everyone's like, okay, it's better. Okay, it's fine. You're back to being the smart, artsy person. Cool, cool. I can't wait for your next project. So now you're talking about as we're leaning into her next project coming, all of a sudden everyone's so excited. Excited again. She's getting to do all the things she wants to do again. And I think it just is a testament to the fact that I don't think people know what they want from Lana Del Rey.
0: Still to this day, you think that?
2: To this day, I think they don't know what they want because they want to know that they have someone who can acknowledge that it's okay to love the wrong man. It's okay to do dumb shit. (laughs) It's okay to feel violent but compose yourself Mm -hmm. for the sake of femininity or whatever it may be Mm -hmm. i think that she speaks to the inner voice that so many people men women non-binary we all kind of think about in living under a patriarchy right Mm -hmm. and i think that she becomes people's guilty pleasures while being their most shameful vice and I think that there's moments where she definitely doesn't get it right. But a lot of times when critics lash out at her, I think it's something that goes on
0: in their own guilt for loving her. Yes, agree. She's so fascinating. I mean, think about the conversation even we've just had. I feel like you could do 10,000 podcasts just picking apart the, as you mentioned, as someone who has given her educational background and just her interest in pop culture and pop music. I mean, you could pick apart so many different threads of her music. There's so much here. There's so much to think about. Right. And that in and of itself is so valuable and so singular to her. I mean, there's so few pop stars where you can go through their whole discography and really feel like you can just pull at endless threads in this particular way. Only the very best. Mm -hmm. And I think that she really stands in that way and she's stood so fiercely and independently in that guise for her whole career the way that she's sort of stuck to her muse right it's inspiring yes is it complicated and yes has she done dumb shit yes but iconoclastic people do stumble in that way she's not manicured she's not perfect she's not Beyonce in that way and I love Beyonce but Beyonce thinks through every single thing that she does to make sure that she's beloved and perceived as the best by as many people as possible and Lana Del Rey doesn't give two flying fucks about that and that's part of what makes her fascinating and interesting and I've loved her existence and I think we've talked about this but I think one of the last things I want to talk about we've talked about her impact on pop music and pop stardom how do you see that are there ways that I haven't brought up yet or that you haven't brought up yet that you feel like we should just say here at the end what is her legacy in pop music and pop stardom
2: Her legacy, I would say, is bringing a graduated level of vulnerability that didn't reek of insanity Mm. with every lyric, because I think that's where sometimes pop music gets it wrong, where you have to be completely insane in your approach to be like, oh, that's the new this or the new that. And I think with her, she exhibits a messiness that is still very much grounded. Mm -hmm. There's something very sane about what she says, even though It seems insane to people who can't even fathom saying it out loud. Totally. And I think that's the thing. Lana Del Rey represents the inner voice, right? And I remember when I was interviewed for my course, I said, Lana Del Rey doesn't create a world where fans think about how they feel about her. She creates a world where fans think about how they feel about themselves. Yeah. And I think that's where there's a different element to her pop stardom when you position yourself like that. Kids have listened to Lana Del Rey and then picked up a guitar mm-hmm. instead of listening to Lana Del Rey and then buying a t-shirt with her picture on it.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. She's definitely like an aspirational character in terms of doing your own thing and making your own world. And I think, obviously, she impacted the sound of pop music. We've talked about the sad girl persona, the slowing down of music, the sparseness of it, the mm-hmm. more introspective topics like her Lord really affected the sound of pop music. But I think as and I think we've said this numerous times, but I think it bears repeating is just the way that pop stardom looks now, the way that pop stardom is all about this world building cult of personality. There is no monoculture. There is no single pop star that takes over in the same way. That's mm-hmm. just the way that the internet is. She created a path forward for how that's supposed to operate, which is that you don't have to have radio singles and play this specific pop star game to have a mega successful impactful, humongous arena touring <laughs> pop career. Right. And she is the blueprint for that. And a lot of people are following in her footsteps right now. Almost all of them at this point. I mean, every major pop star at this point to me feels like a huge cult of personality more so than they do like a monocultural radio bang out artist. It's indebted to her. She changed the game. I think Billie Eilish said that to her in the interview she did with her recently. She was like, you changed the whole game. And it's really, really true.
1: Hollywood and fine like, black rabbit in the air.
0: Lana's not easy to graft onto these Pop Pantheon tiers, I don't think necessarily, because she's such an idiosyncratic and singular artist and her career is so singular and strange. But if you had to say, where do you think Lana Del Rey fits in the Pop Pantheon?
2: Well, I should say first and foremost, I consider her to be the Voltron of Pop Pantheon.
0: I would really (laughs) argue that
2: because I think there's certain parts of her that if you take all of these tiers and put them together, you make yeah. Lana Del Rey. Right. Because in one breath, she is iconic, but in another, she's very niche. But if I'm going to, like, commit to a tier, yeah. I actually think she's in between two tiers. I think she's in between tier two and tier three mm-hmm. because I think that in many ways, she's a megastar. Right. You can say Lana, you know who she is. Yes. Her legacy is pretty much fixed. Yes. I think that at some point she could launch a very successful Las Vegas residency, right? Mm-hmm. I think she just might be a
0: megastar. I think I would say tier two. I'm torn between tier three and niche legend. She's really difficult. This is one of the hardest ones I've come across. I got to say, like, I don't quite know because she doesn't have a lot of the traditional, like, metric things that I'm used to being able to say. Yeah, she's got 20 hit number one songs or whatever. Uh,
2: Yeah, I'm going to argue. I'm going to call it a niche (laughs) megastar. That's what I think her
0: tier is. I think she's definitely niche legend for sure. And then she's one of these other ones too. She's either two or three also. That's the thing that's confusing to me. Yeah. I think she's a crossover somewhere in that mix
2: the only part that renders her not in the megastar category is the 15 genuine hit songs right exactly but i think the few hits she has could eclipse what someone else's quote-unquote hit might be
0: the hit song thing, yes, referred to mononymously. She definitely could be referred to mononymously. A musical era that shifted or defined a certain period of pop, absolutely. She yep. has that. Generation defining definitely has that. Multiple
2: reinventions.
0: Yes, I think she's reinvented herself within her Lana aesthetic in really meaningful ways. So I'll give her that. Yeah,
2: multimedia moments.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The video game's video in and of itself is a thing, but not to mention all of her other big visual moments. If she launched a tour right now, I feel like you're good at this stuff. Do you think she'd tour arenas? What I think she would do is she would tour arenas and then
2: do several secret shows at the smallest of the small venues.
0: But you think she could fill arenas across the country?
2: Absolutely. But I think what she would do for the aesthetics would be more the theater at Madison Square Garden as opposed to Madison Square Garden.
0: Right. But you think she has the commercial power to fill arenas?
2: Yeah. But I think the sound, there's an arena aspect to it. You're putting it within the context of your traditional megastar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I get it. I'll tell you, I saw the Lust for Life tour in an arena and it was one of the strangest arena tours I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I was just like, I've never seen an arena tour that is this narcotic and slow energy. Well, it's
2: because her music is intimate. Yeah. I mean, I prefer to see my megastars at Radio City. Yeah. So for me, I don't like going to Madison Square Garden in general. And the thing is also, even though someone like a Harry Styles made it to Madison Square Garden, I think she's a bigger megastar than Harry Styles because he hasn't
0: shifted genres. She's a more impactful artist, no question, but I think he's a bigger star.
2: I think it's a strength in numbers debate. Our perception of what a successful career and superstar career, if we're looking at it by the number of bodies that fill a pointless stadium, I think that's kind of
0: counterproductive too. Right, I agree. She's reinvented that whole idea. Exactly. So my niche
2: megastar, I stand by it.
0: I hear what you're saying but I think that there's a lot of people out there that like have never heard a Lana Del Rey song in their lives like a lot of people I would imagine and I just think she remains so enigmatic and kind of like idiosyncratic and outside of the mainstream that like I don't think I can place her in
3: tier Mm -hmm. two to me
0: she's a crossover tier three just by sheer impact and influence alone I guess include and I guess including her kind of ongoing commercial success despite not having traditional pop success. Right. I mean, she continues to like sell albums, debut albums in the top slots, sell significant amounts of albums despite not having hits. And then she's kind of like an emblematic niche legend in a lot of ways. So I think I'm going to leave her at niche legend slash tier three. That's where I see her more or less So my final question for you is what is an underrated Lana Del Rey song that we could send the podcast out on? Something we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, this is
2: what makes us girls. I think that's a good one.
0: It's one of my favorite Born to Die songs
3: too.
2: Yeah. There was this meme that was floating around where it was an image of one iteration of Lana with her arm around Lana in her floral crown era. Yeah, And she's talking to herself and she says, Lana, how I hate those boys. There's something so symbolic about that. Yeah, I love Lana fan art.
0: Yeah. Her fans are really creative. I agree.
2: But I do love the concept of that song and the story that she tells. It's like my favorite nineties
0: movie that was never created. Yeah. And also there's something about the female solidarity of that song that's also moving actually in the context. of some of her character. All right. So let's go ahead on This Is What Makes Us Girls. Kathy and thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. So there you have it. Pop Pantheon Lana Del Rey, a certified tier three superstar slash Niche legend, (laughs) the judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the incredible Kathy Andalee for being an amazing guest and to the wonderful Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. And of course, to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ XIV. Shop merch at poppantheonpod.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous this weekend. And until we meet again, have a wonderful, life. Bye-bye!